Carla, and welcome to Spirituality Matters, a podcast that focuses on the intersection of spirituality and humanity. Now let's settle in and find that sacred space between here where I am and there where you are. And let us be reminded that the holy transcends our physical bodies and our time is together is just as sacred and meaningful as if we were sitting beside one another. Okay, let's get started. This is another one of those episodes where I answer some of your questions and there are some good ones here. So let's get into it. The first question, as a gay Christian, it is both a relief and confusing because it's all I've ever known. Do you think Jesus will ever return? And what about a new earth? Okay, so first of all, you can hold on to tenets of your faith if those are meaningful to you. It sounds like you're deconstructing not only from the parts that harmed you, that says being gay isn't a sin, but possibly those some of the beliefs that may still be meaningful to you. There is no judgment on what beliefs that you hold onto. Now, for some of us, like myself, I completely deconstructed from those beliefs. And I hold a more universal teaching and reflection and uh, beliefs about spirituality, because I believe that that really what you believe is more contingent upon where you were born and what religion influenced you there. And we are humans who will never be able to come up with the words or the experience to be able to completely describe or define who or what God is. So just giving that context there, I will go ahead and answer your question about what I think about Jesus returning or what about a new earth. So the Christian belief about Jesus returning is this millennial reign of a thousand years. So they believe Jesus will return to earth to establish a literal kingdom and reign for a thousand years. And this is belief is primarily based on the book of Revelation in the Bible, uh, Revelation 21 through six, if you want to look it up. So during this millennial reign, it is believed that Jesus will establish peace and justice and righteousness. Everything's all going to be good. And during this time, it, it's a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies regarding Messiah, the Messiah's reign on earth. And it is believed that Satan will be bound during these thousand years. So nothing bad can happen. There's no sin. There's no evil or anything like that because only Satan calls that stuff. We, we don't cause that stuff. Satan causes that stuff. So this is known as pre-millennialism as it teaches that Jesus will return right before the millennial period. Now, how is this different from rapture and end times theology? So the rapture refers to the belief that believers in Christ will be taken up to heaven before a period of tribulation on earth that occurs before the millennial reign. So this is the rapture is associated with this pre-tribulational type view, which means believers will be caught up in the air to meet Jesus and, and before a time of great suffering and turmoil. So that's different than the millennial reign that focuses on the period after the tribulation when Jesus establishes his kingdom on earth. So end times theology, which I spoke about in another Q&A session, is only several hundred years old. It's not that old, and it encompasses a broader range of beliefs about the events leading up to the return of Jesus. So really, what it is, is John Nelson Darby looking at this and saying, oh, well, let's let's completely retranslate what we believe or reinterpret what we believe Revelation is about, that it's not uh, a book of hope that's written in code for people, for the people who were being oppressed under the Roman rule. It's really about Jesus return, but it's really about people who were oppressed under Roman rule. So early Christians believed that Jesus was going to return. Jesus believed in God's imminent return. So they expected that to happen anytime. 
So what happens when he didn't return, they began to know that the, his believers in that first generation began to know uh, to die and he hadn't returned. So this delay of his return challenged their initial expectations. And of course, it caused all kinds of theological and practical questions to arrive, but it also became a sense of urgency to start to preserve and pass down their beliefs. And uh, th so the early Christians started to write about Jesus and his teachings and the future events that they anticipated. So that's how you got the writing of the gospels, the letters, and the early Christian texts aimed to explain and interpret those beliefs to help Christians in other generations to understand what they believed. So these are the writings that are foundational in the New Testament um, to help establish that theological framework on Jesus's teaching, but not only his teaching, but his second coming. So you might also hear that some Christians believe that as Jesus referred to himself as son of man, that they that this origin originates from the Old Testament, specifically Daniel, where a figure like a son of man is given authority and dominion by God. So they believe that Jesus using that title identified himself as the fulfillment of the messianic figure described in Daniel. So they think that the son of man title uh, highlighted Jesus's unique role as the chosen one who would bring salvation and establish God's kingdom. It also emphasized his humanity. So the, the title son of man was less, less politically charged than other messianic titles such as son of God or Messiah or, or anything like that. And it allowed Jesus to convey his message without being so provoked provocative or being felt like he, they, he was stoking the fires, if you will, of leaders who were intimidated by him. Now, on the other side of that, though, you have some Christians who, who believe that Jesus never considered himself to be the Messiah. And this is based on their interpretation of a certain biblical passages and historical context. They argue that Jesus primarily identified himself as the son of man, emphasizing his unique relationship with God rather than a specific messianic role. And they point to in instances where Jesus spoke cryptically or indirectly about his identity, possibly to avoid public confrontations. And they argue that Jesus's humility and desire to redirect attention to God's kingdom led him to downplay or even avoid being called the Messiah. So these scholars and Christians believe that historical context is also important here because the argument can be made that there was this expectation of a triumphant political Messiah and that was the belief more prevalent among Jewish people at the time. And that's why they thought, well, this can't be the Messiah because that's not the way we thought he was going to come in. That's not the way he, we thought he was going to go out. But scholars and theologians who hold this view often engage with the text in a different way. They often, often review historical context in a different way and comparative studies to look at how there are other ways to interpret some of what Jesus said about himself and what he, what he believed. So we also have to understand another context. Jesus was a Jew. So as a Jew, he would have been influenced by eschatology around his Jewish faith. What were those beliefs? He believed in the concept of this messianic age. 
So he believed there would be a Messiah, but he also understood that the Messiah would be the anointed one chosen by God. And he spoke of the coming of the kingdom of God because that was a Jewish belief. He thought that God would return and reign on earth for a thousand years. He believed that people should repent and believe in the good news because God was going to return. He thought it would happen in his lifetime. So he didn't specifically mention a specific duration of a thousand years, but his teachings align with what would have been his Jewish heritage. And his emphasis was always on the spiritual and moral aspects of the kingdom. And it differed some from Jewish expectations because he, he focused some on uh, personal transformation. Now, I'm not telling you all of this. If you notice, I'm not telling you what to believe. I'm giving you context here. And I can tell you that depending on where you're deconstructing from and what you think you're deconstructing toward can impact how you handle some of these teachings. But you also, the fact that you are asking these questions might mean that you are ready to dive into some deeper teachings. And you can look at my book recommendations at RevCarla.com, where some of the books that I read when I first was starting my deconstructing might help you, including books by John Shelby Spong, Reza Oslin, uh, Elaine Pagels, and Bart Ehrman could possibly help you. I can answer you, do I believe in a return? I do not. I still hold on to my Christian faith. I have a different relationship with my faith. I have a different relationship with Jesus. No one that gets the right to not call me a Christian because of a different. And there are plenty of Christians who do not believe in the rapture theology. There are Christians who don't believe in the resurrection. There are Christians who don't believe that Jesus ascended to heaven. So those are people who are still entrenched in the Christian faith, who understand that there's a metaphorical and symbolic ability to interpret these scriptures, if that's where your faith is taking you. It's only the ones who have a literal interpretation and a rigid dogma that says, no, you can only believe this way, that really becomes problematic, when in reality, the reason why we have 40,000 Christian denominations worldwide is because nobody can agree on the scriptures. It's so much easier just to start a new church than to try to get consensus. So continue doing the work. Your spirituality and your deconstructing is less about what you believe. It's more about the ebbing and flowing and how it's changing you and transforming you and helping you reclaim your spirituality and helping you heal. What you believe will change just as you change. I hope that helps. Okay. Someone asked if I could do a series on interacting with people post-deconstruction. Well, like maybe one of my Karen wigs. I don't know. Like when to discuss and when not to, how to respect their journey without trying to correct them, how to meet them where they are. Well, there, I will say that early on, if you are early in your deconstructing, more than likely you do not have the words. You are still coming from a place of vulnerability and it is okay to be no contact. And it is okay even if you have to be in company of some people because of your family obligations, uh, whatever it is that's causing you to do that, it is okay to be silent. You can be in co community and not be still be holding on to your inner truth. Now, eventually that may not be. Eventually, especially if what you're hearing is incredibly toxic theology that is weaponizing beliefs and 
being incredibly homophobic and transphobic and sexists and xenophobic, you will find your voice. Or you can say, I will no longer be in community with you. So it's hard to do a series to cover on specifics. It's more about where you are on your spiritual journey and where you are on your deconstructing. And there's no judgment there because there are some people who will never find their words. There are some people because of the abuse that they've suffered and the indoctrination that they're still trying to work through. It's all they've got. It takes everything they have just to do that work. And that is okay too. So be gentle with yourself as you navigate this. If your words are to find you, they will find you. But so many of us learn to silence our voice and our uh, discourse and our, and our disagreement when we want to stand up against some of the bigotry that we would hear in the name of religion. So just give yourself time. Somebody asked me what you would be willing, would you be willing to discuss your thoughts on the afterlife? Do you still think of heaven? And someone says, I'm a silent watcher, healing from religious trauma, would love to know your thoughts on heaven. So I, I combined those two together. I have done some videos on this, but it's been a while. And I, again, this is one of those things where I'm not telling you this so that you can grab onto it and say, well, Rev Carla says, the only thing I want you to say about that when you're using my name in your mouth is when we're talking about religious oppression, you understand the difference and you stand up for yourself and others when you are being religiously oppressed or you witness it. But when it comes to these kinds of beliefs, I can tell you that I've deconstructed from the belief in how heaven was presented to me in my religious heritage, especially in my high control religion. I believe that there's something there beyond the earthly veil that I call the heavenly realm, that I believe that as we move closer to it, closer to death, that that veil becomes thin and somehow we can have pass-throughs and communication. I've witnessed it with people. There's way too many coincidences with people visiting their loved ones and little children coming to visit. It's very consistent with what happens at the end of life. I've seen and I've witnessed miracles. I'm friends with mediums and you can judge me all you want, but I know that each one of us has certain capacities to that we bring in our spiritual suitcase, if you will. And if that's a gift that people use for the good of the whole, then so be it. But I will say this, this is going to be hard for some people to hear. We came from love. To love, we will return. I deconstructed from my anthropomorphized patriarchal God, and that's as close to defining what the divine mystery is. I do believe we return to that in some form. Something of us returns to that. We become more aware as we move closer to death. And I believe that... We, our actions here compel us back to love, but sin will not prevent us from returning to love. Who we are and what we do here. I believe that I don't know about reincarnation. I do think that there's some of us who are more aware and awake and more have a sense of urgency about how quickly we need to evolve into a kinder, more compassionate world, but I don't know what that means for people who have been really cruel and horrible here. I won't make that distinction other than to say we came from love and to love, we will return. That's what I believe. I have one a time for just 
a statement here, and then I'm going to wrap this up. Rev. Carlo, the thing I love about you is how you present the most difficult questions just when I need to be gently nudged into facing them. Thank you. This is my honor. This is my ministry. I was told at the beginning of my deconstructing that I was going to be what I needed when I was deconstructing because I didn't have a lot. I was solo in a spiritual wilderness trying to figure this out. And I felt so alone and scared sometimes and filled with guilt and fear because I still held on to the indoctrinated belief that I was going to hell. I no longer feel, fear that anymore. So I am trying to give you what I needed and I, it is my honor to be here. Okay, that's all the time we have for questions today. Thank you for listening. You can watch the uncut version of today's episode on my YouTube channel, Spirituality Matters with Rev. Carla. You can always connect with me on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well. And of course, visit my website, RevCarla.com, often where we are always updating information on my upcoming courses, live events, and my memberships. I'm honored to be in this space with you. Go in peace and be at peace. Go in love and may you be loved. Go and know that others are on this journey with you and you are not alone. You are seen and deeply and unconditionally loved just the way you are. Blessings on your week and I'll see you soon.